I want to invite you today, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to the gospel according to Mark, the seventh chapter. I keep a Bible on my phone for just such occasions. And uh, if you don't have um, a Bible uh, with you, you can always download one and, and then it's there anytime you need it. I want to read a uh, story from the life of Jesus. And this particular story happens after Christ has been in conversation with uh, the leaders of, of Israel, the, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he's been challenging them to expand their vision, to expand their view of the heart of God towards the world, and to stop always putting such heavy burdens on people, uh, to stop making uh, the faith so crushing to ordinary people. And so we, we turn the page, and in Mark chapter 7, the text says this. Jesus left that place, Jerusalem, and went to the vicinity of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Tyre was located up along the coast of the Mediterranean, north of Israel, actually in uh, what we would call modern-day Lebanon, and just a bit south of Syria. Uh, and so Jesus enters uh, Tyre. He enters a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Imagine any one of those parents that were just standing here in front of us and what they would be feeling if one of their precious children was deathly ill, really seriously sick. This is what this woman is feeling as she comes and throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And then Jesus responds like this, and this is the weird part. He says, first, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I'm gonna explain this in just a minute. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have any of you had a chance to either watch or hear about this new video series that's been making the rounds in the last year or two called The Chosen? Raise your hand if you've even heard of it. Yeah. Um, for those who have missed it, it's available, I think, for free, at least the first season on Amazon Prime. Uh, for my money, the reason why this is getting some some airplay from people and a lot of conversation is because this particular series may be the best produced, most imaginative, compelling, and engaging retelling of the stories of Jesus and his disciples ever made. I mean, it is really that good. <laughs> uh, it is really worth watching and, and hanging in there through the first couple of episodes until you begin to get the rhythm of how they're telling these stories. Now, one of the things that, that just blows you away about the, the Chosen is its portrayal of Jesus. 
Uh, the Jesus they portray is so warm and so good and so magnetic and so brilliant and has such an amazing way with ordinary people and seems to so get us and, and, and understand the complexities of human personality and life situations. And they do a phenomenal job, the producers and directors do, in telling about the ordinary stories of human life. And you get this sense that even if I'm not really big into religion, and some of us just aren't big into religion, we're not big into church, but we think as we look at this Jesus, you I would follow. You, I understand why you are somebody that people would want to follow. And part of the reason why this Jesus that gets portrayed in The Chosen is so follow-worthy in a sense is because he is so accessible. He is so human. He is so much like so many of us. He deals with so many of the things we deal with. And he seems to get the people around him in this wonderful way. And in this sense, though in other parts of The Chosen, the the screenwriters take some imaginative license. They fill in the gaps. It's one of the reasons why I would say, uh, read your Bible first, watch The Chosen second. It, 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 but, but, but in spite of the fact that they do take some imaginative leaps at moments in the series, what they get right, what is in total correspondence, is this picture that the Bible gives us of a Jesus who, though he is God, divine, transcendent, mysterious in so many respects beyond us, is nonetheless very human and very like us. Uh, we got a sense of that last week if you were here. Uh, I talked about a passage of the Bible where Jesus wept. We saw Jesus cresting the, the, the hill, looking at the city of Jerusalem, knowing how much trouble the nation was in, and just breaking forth in tears. And, we, and that's not the only time in the Bible we see Jesus crying, feeling the pain, uh, and the sadness of what's going wrong in human life. Uh, we also see Jesus at other points in the gospel stories, uh, hungry or thirsty. We see Jesus sleeping. We know that, that Jesus uh, had all kinds of normal human feelings. We see him walking and sitting and rising and getting irritated with certain people and taking real pleasure in the company of other people. But I think it's really interesting to note that amidst all of these different descriptions about the human activities of Jesus, there is not one place in the New Testament where we read the words, and Jesus laughed. That's strange, isn't it? I mean, you think about how normal human laughter is, how, how this is a practice that, that binds together people all across the world, how, how comedy is the thing that, that expresses a grace that helps us get through life. Why is it that we never read those words and Jesus laughed? Uh, does that mean that one day we'll stand before a humorless God does it mean that one day we'll find ourselves uh, being faced by a God who sees all of the follies and the foibles of our life and looks at us and points a bony finger and says, I was not amused? Is that what the portrayal of Jesus is telling us about God? I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. Because when you read the Bible carefully, you also note that nowhere does it say, and Jesus chewed his food. I don't think we're meant to think, well, he swallowed his meals whole because it didn't say that he chewed his food. In fact, I think that there are some things that Jesus did so very regularly that the gospel writers didn't bother mentioning it. They don't talk about the fact that Jesus breathed except in one moment when he breathed his last. 
So I think this is the case when it comes to the laughter of Jesus. That's why I love this picture of Jesus. Uh, this was given to me by a friend in this church. I have it in my church office. You can come by and say hello sometimes. You'll see it. it's the first thing I see when I walk into my office in the morning. Because I want to be reminded of this kind of heart that I know God has because Jesus shows it to us. Well, some of you may be thinking, well, if that's true, then, then why, why is it that we don't more often picture Jesus with his face lit up in a grin or with a chuckle at the follies of life or with giving forth one of those big belly laughs uh, from the bottom of his being? And I'm going to suggest that I bet some of you do. Some of, raise your hand if you think, you know, I actually think of Jesus a lot as a joyful being. But I will recognize that for some of us, that's not the image. That, that's not the picture of Jesus that we were um, raised on, in a sense. We were raised to, to think that religion is a pretty serious business. We were mo mostly associated with images of the suffering Jesus. And in a sense, I suppose there's, there's, there's some real truth that, that we need to take hold of there, because to be a follower of Jesus is to come into the presence of God, I mean, almighty God. I mean, a God that is truly holy, as in pure and powerful in a way that you and I simply are not. And so to encounter that kind of an awesome God should sober us up, should, should make us think, should lead us towards a sense of humility. The problem is that, that because religion has some of these serious elements to it, it can lead a lot of us to think, that, that religion has to always be a sober, solemn thing. Uh, maybe we grew up in, in the circle of adults that were kind of portraying things that way. I remember I would go to church as a kid, and we went to this little church in Armonk, New York, uh, and uh, we would go to Sunday school first, and it was okay to kind of be a kid in Sunday school, but when you got into the worship service, you better stop being a kid. You know, and I don't know what it was about sitting next to my parents or my siblings in worship, but it like instantly produced giggling. <laughs> Any of you remember these experiences, right? I mean, I just, I suddenly, the, the way the, the preacher moved his tie or did whatever he did, just would send me into riotous laughter. And I, would, I still have sore spots from where my parents would have to elbow me to settle me down because it was like infectious and my siblings would get laughing too. I don't know if any of you remember that. So I got this idea that in church, you know, we're supposed to be really serious and sober all the time. And, and I didn't see people cracking big smiles in church uh, all the time. Uh, maybe some of you grew up that way. I don't know. And if you did, then it kind of seems almost sacrilegious to think of Jesus as a humorous guy. Uh, I remember the words of Socrates when he said, there must be restraint of unseasonable uh, laughter and tears, and each of us must urge his fellows to consult decorum by utter concealment of all excessive joy and grief. I think there are some people that think that that's what faith or religion or following Jesus or Jesus himself is like. It's all about kind of toning things down, you know, concealing the, the, the big swings of joy or, or of grief. But as I look at the scriptures myself, i got to tell you, I, I just don't buy it. I, I don't think that the temperament of Jesus is tepid. I find it to be actually quite the opposite as I study the New Testament. 
why would a man whose ideal is moderation in all things ever change 150 gallons of ordinary water into the finest possible wine so that a wedding party could keep going? Why would he do that? Why would a God who wanted everybody to stay really sober and serious a lot, um, why would he picture heaven as a heavenly banquet, as a place that people streamed in from east and west and north and south just to come and gather at the massive feast and celebration of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation describes it. It just seems inconceivable to me that Jesus, whom uh, the critics of his time, the religious uh, critics, complained was far too comfortable around children and just way too easygoing around sinful people, uh, it's just impossible to think that he had no sense of humor. I, I can't even imagine how ordinary people, who, by the way, flocked to Jesus. I mean, they kept their arm's length from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They, they, the, the fishermen, the bartenders, the prostitutes, the, the lepers, I mean, just go down the list. Of all these people that were on the edges of life, who were ordinary, regular people, these people ran to Jesus to hear Jesus. They hung on his word. I cannot imagine them doing that. Little kids wanting to hang out with Jesus if he didn't know how to laugh. If he wasn't a person of, of such tremendous joy and hope that, that just to be around him was to like sit in the sunshine uh, for a while. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself said that the practice of faith should not make us look somber. So I would just say to you, um, if you're feeling a little somber today, if, if you've got Jesus in your heart, let your face show it. Feel it. Feel the joy of knowing that he loves you and sees you and has got his arms around you. Uh, Jesus once said that the outcome of following him, of opening ourselves up to his spirit, would be joy. He said literally to his disciples, I've told you everything I have, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full or complete. So the question I want to ask this morning is, why don't we think more often about the humor of Christ? Why don't we think more often about his sense of humor? I guess maybe our memory of his cross casts too heavy a shadow over the rest of his life, that that could be part of the issue. Or maybe we've heard his words so often that kind of like coins that get their edges, the sharp relief worn off by overhandling, we've stopped really even hearing anymore what he's doing with his teaching and his stories and his quips. Uh, or maybe it's because we've been just so bludgeoned by the, the slapstick or the more vulgar humor that's out there in our day that, that we don't recognize the subtlety of the humor Jesus used. And I will confess, um, uh, the humor of Chris Rock and of Christ the Rock are different, okay? And both can be very, very funny. Both can be very, very funny. Uh, the humor of Jesus relies much less on uh, devices like puns or ridicule of other people than on careful pairing of images and ideas. That's his preferred style. Because Jesus is really not out to try and get a laugh for its own sake. Jesus uses humor to open up understanding. And for that purpose, Christ's preferred brand of humor is irony. You know what irony is? Irony is the deliberate exposure 
of a contrast between the way things are said to be or appear to be and the way things actually are. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer says that irony is the artful contrasting of appearance with reality. And Schopenhauer says, laughter springs from the sudden perception of the incongruities between these two things, between the way things are said to be and appear to be and the way things actually are. Um, there are a lot of incongruities to life and incongruities to our lives, if you think about it. I, I remember the story of a, a rural pastor that came to church uh, early one Sunday morning trying to get a, a service ready for the folks that would be showing up in, in, an, in an hour or two. And she drives into the parking lot of her church and she notices there's something big. There's something big and gray out there in the, in the front lawn of the church. And she gets out of her car and she goes over and looks at it. And to her utter astonishment and shock, she's, she's seen that somebody's donkey has escaped from their pen and wandered out into the middle of the church property and died on the front lawn of the church. I mean, it's pretty unsightly. So she goes into her office. She, she gets on the, the phone. She, she calls the police department. She reports what's happened. She asks, can you guys come out here and take this thing away? It's an eyesore. It's a scandal before people arrive for worship. And they said, no, we, we've got too many other things going on. We can't take care of it. Maybe later this afternoon or tomorrow. She said, that's not going to do. I've got people showing up anytime. I'm sorry, ma'am, we can't help you out. She phones the fire department. She has the same kind of conversation. They say, can't do it, can't do it. She's just at her wit's end. It's now getting really close to worship hour. So she thinks, ah, the mayor. I'll call the mayor. The mayor had run recently and gotten reelected on a platform of being this amazingly accessible public servant. I'll be there for you he'd said, in all of his ads. So she gets on the phone with him. And at the first, he seems extremely attentive. And he wants to hear all about it. And then the mayor, who it turns out is a little bit of an irreligious guy, just can't resist the temptation to, to give a little dig at the local pastor. And so he says, well, pastor, this is quite strange. I thought you were the expert in life and death. Why don't you bury the donkey? At this point, the pastor has lost her cool. She's at the end of the line, her patience. She said, well, mayor, I will bury the jackass, but it's my custom to always call the next of kin first. <laughs> the humor of Jesus is kind of like that kind of story. Let me unpack why. The humor of Jesus works a little bit like that story because it isn't designed so much to produce this external guffaw as this inward gaze, this personal reflection. Uh, kind of like the story of the mayor and the jackass, he, he, he's out to try and expose the reality of what's really going on. The, the difference between the advertisements, the campaign ads, and, and the reality of what's really going on in actual behavior. He wants to expose vanity and self-deception. That's what Jesus' stories and quips often do. For example, to a judgmental crowd uh, who's just always pointing the fingers at what other people are doing wrong, uh, Jesus says, have you heard the one about the self-proclaimed moral ophthalmologist that was always trying to take the speck out of other people's eyes when he had a log-sized cataract in his own? Have you heard that one? Uh, 
and the judgmental people winced, and the common people that were tired of being picked on, I'm sure, laughed and were happy to hear that story. Or another time, uh, Jesus talks to this Samaritan woman at a well, and um, he's, he's trying to get under the surface of her life, and he invites her to go get her husband uh, so we can talk even more about what's going on. And she replies with apparent virtue, oh, I have no husband. But Jesus actually knows the truth about this woman's life story. And he says, well, that is technically true. You, you don't have a husband. You, you have had five husbands. And that guy that you've been seeing since the party last Saturday, I'm taking some license here a little bit, um, he isn't your husband yet. And, and it just absolutely stuns her that he knows her, he sees who she truly is, and it leads actually not to her pushing him away, but to her wanting to know more of him. And that woman leads her whole village to the feet of Jesus to come to Christ. Um, he comes up at one point to Peter, who, as you may remember from some of the Bible stories, was a kind of a blowhard, pretty prideful, uh, pretty shifting in his allegiances, you know, says a lot of good things and then you know, denies in other ways. And Jesus, Jesus nicknames him Rocky. That must have been very humorous to the rest of the disciples. The last guy I would say is the rock, is, 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 is Simon, Peter. Uh, but Jesus nicknames him in this humorous way and actually helps Simon eventually become that new identity. To the Pharisees who are always trying to impress other people with their prayer life and their devotion and their fasting, and it would cover their faces with ashes to show how, how mournful they were about their sin, and they go around with these dismal expressions on their face. Jesus says, congratulations, you've gotten exactly what you prayed for. Everybody can see how miserable you are for God. You know, just, just a little dig, trying to help them see what's really going on in their hearts. Time and time again with this twist of sarcasm or satire, Jesus exposes reality beneath people's surfaces. And I love the way novelist George Meredith describes it so eloquently. He says this, whenever men and women wax out of proportion, overblown, affected, or pretentious, whenever they are self-deceived or hoodwinked, when they're given to run riot in idolatries, congregating in absurdities, planning short-sightedly, plotting dementedly, whenever they are in variance with their professions and violate the unwritten but perceptible laws that bind us in consideration for one another, whenever they offend sound reason or fair justice or are false in humidity or mind with conceit, the spirit overhead will humanely malign them and cast an oblique light on them, followed by veils of silvery laughter, the laughter of God. There's this really important difference between the kind of humor Jesus uses and that which sometimes passes for humor in our society today. Jesus' humor is not aimed at hurting people though it may hurt momentarily. It's aimed at healing people. He's not, it's not aimed at vaunting himself over people. It's actually aimed at lifting people up, even though, like, if you've been sitting down for too long, uh, standing up sometimes can, can kind of hurt a little bit. It's aimed at lifting people up. And sometimes 
to do the soul surgery that he's out after with human beings, he has to inflict a little bit of pain just to get us to think differently, just to wake up. I had a, I had a, a, a lesson in this myself. Um, I've had many lessons in that over the years. I want to tell you one story. I'm in my early 30s. I'm pastoring a church in San Diego. And it's a Friday, and I realize that I'm uh, looking a little bit uh, unkempt. And so I figured I've got to go and take care of that. And I, I, at the last minute, I'm not able to get a regular appointment. I get an appointment at a salon that I've never been to before. I sit down in the chair, and a very nice stylist comes up, and, and, and she's looking me over, and she says, you know, are you aware that you've got, um, you know, some gray hair coming in? Now, I was having gray hair coming in in my early 30s, as my wife would tell you. Um, and I said, no, I wasn't aware of that, you know, lying to her face. I was very vain about that. It was bugging me that this was already happening at such a young age. And she says, you know, have you ever thought about maybe getting some highlights uh, in your hair? And I said, no. I had been thinking a lot about having my hair colored at this particular point. And uh, she says, uh, and I said, well, what, would it show? Would it show if I did that? And she says, oh, nobody would notice it at all. It just looked like you've been out in the sun a little bit more. You just would look a little younger. And so an hour and a half, I walked, hour and a half later, I walked out of that place with my head glowing in the dark. <laughs> I cannot tell you the pain of facing my congregation on Sunday morning. And that was nothing compared to the fact that the next weekend I had to go to a family wedding and face my brothers and sister. Oh, oh it was so painful. But, you know, it was a healing kind of pain. Um, as you probably noticed, I've stopped highlighting the hair. Actually, I went all the way. Went with white. Um, but it really felt like God was using this moment to show me how unbelievably vain and superficial I was. I'm not trying to throw rocks at anybody that chooses to color their hair. Lots of good reasons why people do that. But for me, in that particular moment, it was just, it was just this painful reckoning with the fact that I put a lot of stock in how people viewed me externally and maybe not so much in how I actually was rooted in God and his love. And I got to think, as I'm walking out of that, out of that salon that day, Jesus is, Jesus is belly laughing at what I've just done and what he knows is actually going to be the consequences of this in my social relationships. Um, Elton Trueblood, I don't know if that's a name any of you know, but he was the chaplain to, uh, at Harvard University and at Stanford University for many years. And he once observed this. He said, laughter isn't cruelly humiliating provided that we are all humiliated together. I love that. You know, because I think a lot of us, we look at ourselves and, there's, and there are these things about us we don't like and there's these, these things we try and keep buried and, and, we, and we think, oh, it's, it's such a sign of my imperfection that I would never feel comfortable talking about that or having other people know about that here. And yet the truth is, this is everywhere. These, these, these weaknesses, these vices, these vanities, these are, these are so common to the human condition that maybe we ought to just have a good laugh together and know that, you know, it's not the end of the world. There's a grace that's greater than the gravity of our lives. And, and we're, we can be in it together. 
uh, before a God whose, whose laughter at us is, is, is really just uh, the voice of love, knowing that we're human and that he wants to work with us further. So my question to you today is, what in your life right now might bring forth the laughter of Jesus? What's the incongruity? What's the, the contradiction between what you're trying to put out as an appearance and the reality of who you are, what you're saying or, versus what you're doing? Because even if other people don't yet pick up on it, God, God has already seen it. Uh, the prophet Samuel says that, that human beings, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the laughter that God inflicts upon us as I've said, is, is not trying to hurt us. And by the way, the laughter that God inflicts upon us is often inflicted through his servants, through people that are poking fun at our vanity. Um, it's not designed to, to, to really to, to destroy us. He wants it to change our heart and our actions uh, for the good. And laughter can do that like few tools can. I will say that there are all kinds of laughter. And there's the kind that sees the way things are and names them. And there's also the kind that sees the way things can be and hopes for them. And so to end today, I just want to share a vision that I have with you. I invite you to picture yourself in this. In this particular vision, uh, I want to take you back a bit to that story uh, that we read earlier with uh, the woman at the, at the feet of Jesus because on that particular day when she shows up and drops uh, down to the floor underneath the table, she is just desperate. She, she knows she needs help and she does not have the resource outside of herself. And in, and in the view of the people that were sitting at that table, she didn't really deserve much because this was a, likely a gathering of Jewish people uh, in, in Lebanon there. And this woman was a Syrophoenician, this text says, which is to say is a Gentile, which is to say somebody outside Judaism. This was somebody who the, the, the traditional Jewish mind viewed as way down the priority list of God. God had come first. If there was a Messiah, he was coming first for them. And, and, and the other people, the Gentiles, the Syrophoenicians, stood about as much chance of, of being high up on the list of God's concern uh, because they didn't follow the Jewish laws. Uh, they didn't have the history that the Jewish people had. Uh, they, were, they stood as much chance of, of, of getting uh, bounty from God as some junkyard dog had of getting a perfectly cooked ribeye steak just handed to them. That was their view. So, so Jesus knows what they're thinking. And, and he gives voice to their point of view at the table. And I picture him doing this with a twinkle in his eye. Um, so the woman is there, audaciously coming, asking for help. And Jesus says, basically speaking for the people at the table, shall I offer to a mere dog what I have come to give first to the children of Israel? And not missing a beat. This woman who's got a passion for what might be possible yet with God. She has given up probably on what the religious people will do for her but she sees in Jesus a different kind of heart, and she's not given up hope that maybe that holy man sees me and, and would have compassion on me and my daughter. And so she says, I think also with a twinkle in her eye, Lord, she replied, 
Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs, don't they? Even the dogs get a break sometimes, don't they? And it's not printed in the text. But I bet Jesus laughed. I bet he laughed. And he said, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Picture yourself down on the floor, underneath the table. Only this table is not the one entire. This is the one at the end of time. This is that great banquet table to which they'll come streaming from every direction and gather at the final supper, the ultimate banquet. And picture yourself down there with the legs of this table going up so high that you can't even see the top of the table. All you can sense is the glorious things happening up there and the, the clinking of the plates and the, and the utensils and the, and, the, and the joy that's up there. And you're way down here. You're way down here. And as you're way down there at the bottom, beneath the table, you see the big boots, these big jack boots going by at eye level for you. And they're the, they're the feet of your accuser. And like some demonic prosecuting attorney, the devil, Satan, the enemy, however you want to conceive him, is, is ringing out all of the reasons why you need to be thrown out of this place. And he starts going down a list. He starts describing in intimate detail every time that, that you or I spoke inappropriately, every time when we failed to step up to the call of duty or of holiness, every moment that we passed by opportunity or need that we just blew off because we were too concerned with ourselves, every time we used our voice the wrong way, every time we judged uh, somebody else too harshly, every hypocrisy in our life, every vanity, every secret sin, our accuser knows every bit of it, and he lists every bit of it in incredible detail, and he calls for us to be thrown out of the house of the Lord. And for the first time in your life, if you've never known this before, you know now, after hearing that litany, that you do. That you do. You do not have any rightful and obvious, I don't have any rightful or obvious place at this table. And you hang your head, as I would. And then you hear a sound. And it's the sound of a big chair. I mean a really big chair being scraped back, pushed back from a table. And suddenly you see another set of feet coming around the table towards your side. And you notice these feet are nail pierced. And you look up and the radiant presence of Jesus himself is there. And, and, and as he bends down towards you in the table, you instinctively shrink out of fear of judgment before the holiness of God. And to your utter amazement, he reaches out and with both of those nail-pierced hands, he starts ladling mound after mound of the most glorious, mouth-watering grace over the side of the table, down to you, so much you can scarce take it in. And the voice of the accuser rings out, I'm not finished with him yet. 
And Jesus says, neither am I. And Satan scowls. And Jesus, well, you know what he does. He laughed. 